0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Women's History, a channel of the New Books Network. I am Rebecca Turkington, and I'm joined today by Dr. Gregory Fitzer to discuss his new book, Fame is Not Just for the Fellas, Female Renown and the Childhood of Famous Americans series. It was published just last month by University of Massachusetts Press. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Greg.
0: Oh, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to be here.
1: Uh, Dr. Fitzer is the Chair of American Studies at Skidmore College, and his primary research interest is popular historical writing, which is the subject of his previous books, including Picturing the Past, Illustrated Histories and the American Historical Imagination, Popular History in the Literary Marketplace, and more recently, History Repeating Itself, the Republication of Children's Historical Literature and the Christian Rite. He's also written numerous journal articles on American literary figures from Thoreau to Twain. So Fame is not just for the Fellows, which we'll talk about today. looks at a widely popular children's biography series published between 1932 and 1953. That's the Childhood of Famous Americans series. And the book looks at the editorial and production choices around specifically the women figures who are included in this. I'm really delighted to be able to feature this book because I think it offers a really fascinating way to think about women's history, which is how a whole generation of American children were introduced to the canonical women of American history and also how that canon was determined. So before we jump into the specifics of the book, um, Dr. Fitzer, could you tell us a bit about your own background? Um, How does this book build on your previous research, and why did you decide to write about the Childhood of Famous Americans series?
0: Sure. Well, as you noted, I'm a professor of American Studies uh, at Skidmore College in upstate New York, and uh, my work is uh, mostly motivated by uh you know an interest in popular history and in particular trying to make a distinction between the kind of history i studied when i was younger which is to say a kind of stockpiling of information learning everything you could about the facts of the past and trying to um uh, outsmart your uh, other (laughs) historians with respect to how much you know uh, about a particular topic but uh, as i was going through school i began to become interested in this the, the distinction between History as sort of recorded fact, and history as a a kind of subjective process of active construction. So, thinking a bit about how historical memory works, and the ways in which um, certain kinds of historical ideas uh, are in contestation with other ideas, and how the how the sort of battleground is worked out in venues like, in this case, the production history of. Books That relate to, um, you know, children's um, literature and so forth. So most of my research, as I say, is is centered on that in the history of the book. Uh, And in terms of, um, you know, other background, um, my previous research has really been in 19th century uh, uh, works, but I got interested in the the 20th century children's literature um, by virtue of um, the previous book that you mentioned called History Repeating the Past, where I was um, fascinated by Um, uh, you know, particular kind of um, historical work that was being done in my own time um, in the 20th century when I was working and studying history.
1: So why did you decide to focus on Childhood of Famous Americans or COFA, which we can probably refer to it as for the rest of this talk? Why is it worth studying today?
0: Yeah, so I, um, as I mentioned in the introduction to the book, it, I really started uh, on this topic for two reasons. One, it was personal. Um, I tell the story of how, as a young boy um, in the fifth grade of uh, Miss Hazelrod's uh, you know, uh, Coleraine, Ohio Elementary School, I was uh, you know, sort of um, exposed to these books and, and really found them interesting and intriguing. And I um, I also, um, you know, I think it probably comes along with a midlife crisis as well. So now, you know, I'm at a point in my career where I'm looking back and reflecting on what the inspirations for me personally were with respect to studying the past. And I started to think back to those child biographies that I had read and thought was, you know, sort of thinking about the ways in which um, they've influenced me, even as a professional historian. Um, which is interesting to think about because, of course, they're written for children, and as you know, they're um, also uh, fictional biographies. And so, uh, they uh, it, the the thought that that might have conditioned much of my thinking as a child and carried on into my professional life was interesting to me. <laughs> the other The other thing I would mention is I was doing some research on the prior book, and I happened to come across um, a file on the children. Um, Childhood of Famous Americans in the Lilly Library in, in, at, at uh, Indiana University, and I just started, you know, looking through the file and got interested, and so sometimes when you do research, it's, you, you, you spawn other things mm-hmm. as well, so.
1: Absolutely. So let's talk about the series itself. Um, what are the origins of this? And as you write about in the book, it was originally Boyhood of Famous Americans. Um, what were the sort of founding principles of its um, editors?
0: Yeah, so the origins of the series are really um, centered on a kind of fortuitous moment in which a a school teacher turned writer, but not until she was in her 60s and she she wrote all the way up into her 90s, a woman named Augusta Stevenson sent a manuscript to Bob's Merrill Publishers in um, Indianapolis and essentially uh, asked if they would consider publishing a book that dealt with the childhood of Abraham Lincoln. And they were interested. It was an Indiana topic, a Midwestern topic, and Lincoln, of course, very popular uh, among children and, and adults of, uh, who study history. And so uh, they uh, spent a number of years sort of putting together this biography, which did very well. And eventually, over time, there was thought of companion pieces and other kinds of, you know, supporting volumes in the series. And finally, um, the the publisher of the of the uh, series, a man named David Lawrence uh, Chambers decided that the, the the works were popular and um, and profitable enough to go ahead and create um, an entire series. Uh, and so, I did. It, it wasn't as if it sprung out of uh, someone's mind, as if you know they said, "Well, I've got a con, I've got an idea for a whole series of books. They're going to treat these subjects." Uh, but rather, it started from that one seed, if you will, and uh, you know, develop from there. And in terms of the founding principles, uh, once the series was established, the idea was to attempt to uh, write books that would interest children um, on on their level. So the feeling was that children were not learning history very well, and that part of the reason was because history deals with adult, um, you know, most of what was being written for history, you know, uh, deals with adult events. And so the idea was to create books um, that would deal with the childhood of famous Americans and therefore give other children a sense of not only how they might aspire to greatness themselves, but to see the ways in which uh, that greatness emerges sometimes haltingly in the childhoods of, you know, kids like they were, that is to say, kids that, you know, who were reading the books as well. So the idea was... That because a lot wasn't known about um, much of the uh, many of the childhoods of these famous people, many of them, for instance, were, you know, 18th century people, founding fathers. The idea was that you could use fiction. And in this case, that would be invented dialogue. um, You know, sometimes, um, you know, um, fictional scenes. You could use fiction to tell a story um, it, that would be embellished um, but would allow for uh, children to um, imagine and to, and, and to uh, in that sense, again, um, it was aspirational that they could imagine themselves. It's, it's what, what Jane Hunter refers to as fictive personalities. So that we, you know, children develop um, personalities and then they transfer them to historical characters and vice versa.
1: So a lot of your book looks at behind the curtain, as it were, at Bob's Merrill, um, and as sort of the process of these books being written. Could you talk about that writing and editing process? Um, who wrote these books? How were they reviewed? Um, and who had ultimate authority?
0: Right, yeah, this is what really interests me most in, in the project in some ways, is what I would call the production history of these works. If you accept my general premise that history is negotiated, and that the past is something that um, is contested, then it's really fascinating to see how historical narratives are generated when you have groups of people involved. And those groups usually include editors, um, authors, obviously, but also book agents, um, you know, and uh, publicists and others. And what, what I found with the creation of these um, Childhood of Famous American books was essentially that there, they, there were battles, um, uh, sort of operational conflicts um, within Bob's Merrill itself, centered largely on gender. At least that's what I'm focusing on in, in this particular book. Um, and um, the, the, the points of um, conflict often uh, resulted from the fact that the majority of the authors of the books in the series, and there were over a hundred of these books, um, uh, the authors were generally women, The editors at Bob's Merrill were almost exclusively women, with one exception, and that is the chief editor, trade book editor, um, David Chambers. And so the story that I tell is the story of how the um, female editors essentially had to work over many decades to convince the editorial board, but in particular convince David Chambers, that that these books uh, um, showcasing uh, famous women were worth adding to the collection member originally, as I said, it was started as a boyhood of American famous Americans and turned into the childhood of famous Americans. So those, those contests, those, those debates are really interesting. Um, there's a woman, Jessica Mannon, who was particularly inspirational in this process insofar as she was uh, one of the few, uh, Chambers was a, quite a personality and could be grumpy at times. And she was able to, uh, over the course of a, a number of years, to convince him to um, expand the, um, the the series to include women.
1: So let's talk about that expansion a little bit and that change from boyhoods to childhoods. Who were the first women that they decided to include, and why did they pick those ones?
0: Yeah, so um, the and, and this speaks a little bit to the question of how those choices were made as well. Um, the uh, typically what would happen would be that there would the editorial board would um, make suggestions, and they chose um, at least early on the first the first of the um, the girlhoods to be discussed was that of Louisa Alcott. And she was chosen in part because Jessica Mannon, the associate editor I mentioned, had a sister named Jean Wagner, who um, had been doing some copy editing work for them and some ghost writing, actually. And they asked her to consider writing a volume for the series. And she happened to have a personal interest in Alcott, and so uh, she, and she was reading uh, some of Alcott's works to her own children, and they were responding to them, so she decided to to choose that topic. And then, in general, you um, the process was interesting. Um, sometimes people just submitted manuscripts um, that and the board would have to decide whether or not it was something worth pursuing. At other times, the board solicited manuscripts. This was particularly true for um, works by Augusta Stevenson, who had written the original book on Abe Lincoln. She wrote 28 volumes for the series, um, many of which were on women, but not exclusively so. Um, And so uh, that that the the issue of, you know, sort of how they chose um, the topics is a little bit. um, It was a little bit sporadic. Let's put it that Mm -hmm. way.
1: Well, before we jump into talking more specifically about some of the women that they profiled, let me ask you about sort of the overarching tensions that you see within the editorial staff. What are the traits of girlhood that they are trying to espouse? Um, And do you see contradictions between, you know, David Chambers and his largely female editorial um, colleagues?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So there, you know, um, of course, our our understandings of of, uh, femininity and feminism have expanded pretty broadly over the last 50 years or so. But in the mid 20th century, when these books were being considered, there was it was really um, it was um, there was a kind of sense that it was that these terms existed on a spectrum and that one either would emphasize, you know, uh, femininity and and try to um, convince say, young readers of these books that though that was the pathway toward womanhood or uh or feminism and again we're here we're not talking here about second wave or third wave feminism we're really thinking here about the mid you know we're taught these books were coming through from the 30s 40s and 50s and so the 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 debates that occurred often occurred on the question of how much um what should be emphasized about girlhood and womanhood and how much to explore the possibility of activism as a um as a sort of leitmotif in in some of these stories to to set the stage um i think um you have to understand that in the certainly in the 19th century and into the early 20th century there was still that stigma attached with fame and renown as it related to women and the old adage was that women were to be you know in the public eye you know, when their births were recorded in the newspapers and when their deaths occurred and the obituaries were being generated. And so the idea that women would seek actively seek out fame and renown was something that was, um, you know, certainly um, our attitudes about those things have certainly changed. I noted in the first chapter of the book that, for instance, the Hall of Fame for Great Americans didn't include any women in the first um, balloting. And there were those uh, in the early part of the 20th century who were trying to rectify that a bit, many of them um, authors and editors at, um, at Bob's Merrill here. So the, the question then was, um, to what extent would one want to create a portrait of a girlhood that would anticipate a womanhood that was associated with issues of things like uh, the cult of domesticity, um, marriage, Um, the, um, in many cases, these were, um, women who were considered famous by association. So for instance, some of the early volumes include a work on Martha Washington, George Washington's wife, or Mary Todd Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's wife. And so the idea was that you would have, um, you would propose that in, in the text itself, you would see fictional scenes devised that would propose ways in which, Um, young girls begin on the pathway toward womanhood.
1: So can we talk a little bit more specifically about how that plays out in some of the volumes? I love the phrase you use about tomboy transformation, um, especially around these books on America's first ladies. How do you see, how do authors try to manage that in books on, say, Martha Washington?
0: It's very interesting because some of these women um, or girls who were uh, featured in these books were themselves uh, depicted as tomboys in in many of these fictional scenes. Um, the idea was that they would be, in, in displaying tomboyish activities, that were, um, they would be um, challenging traditional um, uh, visions of girlhood. And so in a lot of ways, the authors attempted to suggest that, that um, women like again, Mary Todd Lincoln, who, who appears in, in, uh, her, in the volume of Catherine Wilkie, she appears as a, um, as a, a, a ruffian of sorts right? she really she she's uh, she's certainly uh, an anti-authoritarian she backtalks her father um she's got a a, a new step uh, mom that she meets for the first time and she's uh, sassing her a bit and so forth and so the, early on um in these stories you find that um if to the extent that a rebellious girl appears she often appears in the guise of a tomboy wants to play with the boys, wants to participate in activities that traditionally and stereotypically are associated with boyhood. What happens in the course of the story, however, is that ultimately, and most of these stories took the children up to the age of 10 or 12 or so, and then ended with a concluding chapter, which would deal with their um, lives as women. And what would happen is we would gradually see throughout the story um, a, a, a diminution of the tomboy, Personality and the emergence of uh, a more traditional um, domestic, um, you know, depiction of womanhood. So womanhood. So you. So you will have, for instance, um, Julia Ward Howe, uh, the poet. Um, you know, being a, a tomboy at the beginning of the book, and then we're learn. We learn as we read through. Uh, about how uh, marriage worked for her and the relationship you have with her husband and the way in which that was characterized as his being her her knight in shining armor and so forth. And so early on in the series, you tend to see um, more of that kind of transformation. Toward the end of the series, um, that is in the 40s and 50s, um, it becomes more um, the case that some of these women remain rebellious um, not just in their tomboy characterizations, but in their radical reform activities, and so that leaves the the um, Bob's Merrill people with the debate, which occurs over and over again in these editorial meetings, um, about whether or not um, to emphasize that their radical agendas.
1: Mm-hmm. Another theme I find really fascinating about this book is, as you alluded to before, these are really fictionalized. But there's still, as you term it, a porous membrane between fact and fiction. Um, I'd like to talk specifically about two books that are perhaps more based on myth than on historical fact, which is um, Molly Pitcher and Betsy Ross. How did the Smerrill authors and editors deal with sort of conflicting historiographical accounts, but also the possibility that these stories never happened at all?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So and if I could just backtrack for one second, then I'll I'll certainly address that question. I I should mention that in the Lilly Archives at uh, Indiana University, there are um, sort of copious copious correspondence between the editors and the writers. And so much of my research was based on... um, uh exchanges uh, and and drafts of um, manuscripts and so you know um, somebody like Augustus Stevens would submit a manuscript on a character like Molly Pitcher uh and then uh and then the editors would read it they would write back and say well we can't have a Molly Pitcher who does this we need someone who does that and so these um these exchanges really become part of the negotiated past now in the case of Molly Pitcher and Betsy Ross these are two women who um, whose girlhoods, there was virtually nothing known of their girlhoods. and so much of the much of the way to um, get at their fame was to create fictional um, scenes in which um, characters in in using invented dialogue um anticipate you know how these two women especially had an impact on military history. So, they're especially interesting because women were traditionally excluded from narratives about the military. And so the idea that there might be women who impacted um, military history um, is something that was attractive to some of the editors at Bob's Merrill. The challenge was that in, Betsy Ross was a, a real person and um, existed and uh, and it was, you know, apocryphally associated with the creation of the first American flag during the revolution and and so on. But the uh, some of what has been uh, said about her um, seems to be an invention of the late nineteenth century, in which. Um, some of Ross's relatives a- attempted to promote her as a kind of, you know, a symbol of women's rights and a women's involvement in um, in military things. Molly Pitcher is a comp- seems to be a composite of of two or three women, um, and there seems to, you know, Augustus Stevenson, who submitted the manuscript, seems to have thought that she was Dutch, and so the first draft of the manuscript she sent in, she has her clogging around in, you know, wooden shoes and. Um, and, and and speaking of her Dutch heritage, it turns out, of course, she was Pennsylvania Dutch, which is really a perversion of the word Deutsch, which means that, you know, the, the the family background, to the extent that we even know if she's the person that is associated with the historical record, was probably German rather than Dutch. And so the editors have to write... Augusta Stevenson back and say, we, she's not from Holland, uh, we, we, we have to change the narrative. And so there, is these, there are these ways in which fiction becomes an avenue for getting at the kind of historical figure you want, not necessarily at the kind that may have existed or not existed at all. And if I could mention one other name, there's a whole volume in the series about, about um, someone named Virginia Dare who was considered to be the first white um, European child born in the New World in the Jamestown colony in 1607. No one knows what happened to her. That colony was lost, the, the Roanoke colony was lost. Uh, yeah, it wasn't Jamestown, excuse me, it was Roanoke. Um, that colony was lost and no one knows whether she survived uh, even a month beyond her birth. And yet the series allowed Augusta Stevenson to write an entire volume, 192 page volume, on, on this figure named Virginia Dare, taking her through childhood and re- writing concluding chapters about her uh, womanhood. And so there's a case where um, the fictional elements really become, um, they really usurp um, the factual elements.
1: So as you mentioned before, this series is very much a product of its time. And I think it deals with a lot of issues in a way that we probably would not deal with them today. Um, I'd like to ask you specifically about how indigenous people are portrayed in this series. You know, Kofa included volumes both about sort of Western homesteaders, about missionaries, and also about Native Americans like Sacagawea and Pocahontas. Um, Let's, yeah, dive into that a little bit.
0: Yeah, so this is a very fascinating thing, and again, one of the things that we have to remember is that these were volumes that were written primarily by, you know, they're works of white construction, written and produced by white authors, uh, and 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 you know, really edited with respect to a white nationalist agenda, and so what we have here, in the case of the especially the volumes on indigenous peoples, is. What appears to our eyes today to be very anachronistic treatments um, of of such figures. It's um, this is also true, by the way, for African American figures in the series. Um, There were no women who were African American women who were featured until the series was revived a little bit later. There were two African American males who were included in the series, and again, the majority of the volumes in these um, in the whole series were of, of male figures. But in the case of Indigenous peoples, the idea was to take someone like Sacagawea, for instance, and to speak of her as um, a figure who in, inevitably became a kind of enabler for the Lewis and Clark expedition, which traveled you know, across um, uh, the continental um, area there, and, and also um, to think of her as somebody who served as a guide for the sort of you know, manifest destiny that was, which, which was getting its start in the early part of the 19th century. And of course, she's become a more controversial figure, uh, especially among um, Indigenous peoples um, lately who, who tend to, again, see her as an enabler, as somebody who... Um, you know, um, worked a little too closely for uh, the expansion of, of, of white settlement, but in this case, she, her story is really about, um, and she does it. Um, it's a very interesting depiction because she does come off again early on as someone who's sort of anti-authoritarian. She has a lot of arguments with her mother in the in the book about um, why she can't ride horses and boys can. She um, the, she's told that that that. Horses are a kind of uh, um, currency of the realm for uh, Native American tribes out west, and that, in fact, um, you know, her her own. Um, future marriage will depend on how, how horse worthy she is in terms of how many horses can be traded for her and so forth. And so there are ways in which we, we she becomes a very sympathetic character in, in these stories. But there's also especially in the conclusions, and this is true for the Pocahontas as well, conclusions that relate to, um, you know, the ways in which they served as reconcilers of white and Native American culture.
1: So staying on this idea of the series as a product of white supremacy, how do they deal with the institution of slavery throughout?
0: Yeah, slavery was particularly touchy um, and uh, they dealt with it in a number of ways. The, the, most, um, the earliest and I think most consistent way was to try to ignore it. So there's a lot of correspondence with David Chambers in which, with the editors in which you'll say something like, um, "We we we don't want to use the word abolition because abolition is still a fighting word in the South," um, or we don't want to alert people to the abuses, the abusers who were uh, at the center of the slave system, uh, but rather we want to deflect some of that and speak of the of the international slavery and and the ways in which it was the system and not individual people who were responsible for its horrors and so for instance in the there's a one of the volumes is on harriet beecher stowe who wrote uncle tom's cabin and the author um you know created a fictional scene in which um a young harriet um as she's called goes um to The south and and sees uh, some instances of how slave um operations uh work and she is horrified by one um particular depiction which is uh sort of considered parallel to that of simon legree in the uncle tom's cabin and uh so the author um wrote a um a draft of the of the book in which um, she claimed that uh, Stowe was inspired to write that novel by virtue of this trip as a girl, which of course was not a documented trip. And uh, the editors wrote back and said, "We, why would we want to, you know, create a kind of um, storyline that would emphasize the cruelty of slavery?" Um, Let's instead try to, you know, uh, suggest the ways in which that particular trip like that might have inspired her to uh, find ways to deal with slavery in what was called a more genial fashion. Now, again, to our eyes, the discussion of something like genial slavery seems like such an oxymoronic thing to consider. But in the 19th, in the mid 20th century, rather, when these books were being published, Slavery was still one of those question things that that were uh, left untalked about or um, managed in a certain way, and so um, so this was a, a part of the negotiation was that you would talk about it not so much as a benevolent institution, although there's certainly references to the relationships between some of these young girls and the the um, the slaves, uh, the the in one case Mammy Tuck, for instance, who raised them. But, there's, but there is disc, there is, a way in which much of this is muted.
1: Mm-hmm. So as you said earlier, the COFA books tend to underplay the overtly feminist work of many of their subjects. Um, could you talk about specifically two activists who actually devoted their whole lives and careers to women's rights, um, Lucretia Mott and Susan B. Anthony, how were they treated by the editorial staff when it, it's sort of hard to diminish the feminism of their careers.
0: That's right. And these, and as a, these are books that were written uh, toward the end of the, um, the series run. And so we do start to see in them um, a, a greater um, recognition um, of the, uh, of the radical edge of some of these um, folks. Although, we wouldn't want to make the case that they did much more. They, they certainly softened the radical edge. Um, but we find that the uh, the female editors in particular, Jane Throckmorton, um, who is uh, really at the center of some of this, as well as uh, Patricia Jones, they begin to lobby for books to be written by uh, about um, such women, um, Susan B. Anthony, um, Lucretia Mott, uh, Maria Mitchell, um, these are all women who had actually very similar backgrounds. A number of them were Quakers and can, came out of traditions uh, uh, associated with Quakerism and pacifism and um, the abolitionist movement. And uh, so not only do they uh, begin to solicit works on these people, but they also um, they spend um, a lot of time in the negotiation process trying to um, parse out the distinctions between femininity and feminism. And the authors, interestingly, um, begin to become um, um, more outspoken, especially in dealing with David Chambers, about what they want to see in terms of this. Some of the editors and um, on, some of the folks on the staff would write and say, uh, these characters are, um, they're, they're, they're being portrayed as too feminist. And then the authors would push back and, uh, and suggest that, well, this is their, this is their claim to fame. And so it does come, it comes back again to this question of, of um, what's appropriate in terms of female renown, what will the, the readers tolerate and like and pursue, and also, of course, what, um, what do the editors want, the female editors in particular want, with respect to making this into a series that young, where young girls can find role models, um, you know, for a more activist-minded um, womanhood.
1: So let's continue to talk a little bit about what you've just been saying this changing gender norms throughout the lifespan of kova essentially um, they're really a reflection of Cold War America but what are some of the differences you see between these early works and later works um, you know what does over this 30 years how do those norms change
0: yeah so this is a case where um, we have to think about when we talk about a negotiated past we also have to think about the reading uh, response and the receptivity of of um those who are buying and 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 reading the books Uh, toward the end at the beginning of the series again um, the the there's a there's a kind of formulaic quality to um the writing the the plot structures and character development and um the uh one of the things is as the number of um, volumes begins to increase the um the pressure to kind of um, break the mold a bit um, becomes um, more evident but in addition to that there's a way um, that in this i think is, is some of the cold war um america um, backdrop which is significant to this series there's a way in which things are changing in the world and uh, and the 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 authors themselves are seeing those changes and wanting to incorporate them into um, the books themselves. You see it a lot in cases where um, there'll be references to uh, the ways in which, say, um, you know, legislation from the 1950s or um, into the late 1950s, say, Brown versus Board of Education in 54 begins to become an incentive for improving what um, the, the role that women would have in education um, in these texts so in a lot of cases there there in the later in the latter case there are instances in which say um, individual characters like Maria Mitchell uh, gain uh, some of their um, the, this part of the story uh, is is it devolves around evolves around this question of um, how do they best the boys in school um, or, there are instances in which, um, you know, the 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 Cold War requires um, that the the that the Bob's Merrill demonstrate its anti-communism because that was of course raging in the um, in the 1950s, but in which authors. Uh, You know, push back and suggest that um, just because someone is, uh, just because uh, a woman is radical, she's not a communist. And so we see, um, we see this in the, especially in the editorial correspondence. At one point, David Chambers accuses Augusta Stevenson of being um, too afraid. uh, In one instance, to um, you know, um, make a reference to communitarian living because he thinks uh, there may be some association with communism.
1: Fascinating. Um, Let me ask you a little bit more. Actually, you just mentioned the reception of these books by their readers. And I haven't actually asked you about that yet. What was the reception of this book by the kids who are reading them and by the teachers and the librarians who were buying them?
0: Yeah, one of the fun things about doing the research on this was to try and figure that out. And of course, it's, you know, audience receptivity and and um, response is a difficult thing to sometimes measure. But there's actually some pretty good sources for this. First of all, um, you you begin to see the expansion of in this period of children's librarians and children and journals associated with, you know, Hornborg and others associated with, um, children's literature, and so you do get there's a there are a fair number of instances in which stu- uh, children are actually asked about their response to particular books that they've read. In the Bob's Merrill collection at in uh, at the Lilly Library in Indiana University, there are testimonials from children that the the press collected uh, or the the firm collected. Now, of course, those are mostly positive, and you know, used for pro- for uh, promotional materials and things. There's also Kirkus reviews, which uh, throughout this period give little, little small snapshots of responses um, from from people, and occasionally these books were reviewed. Um, in this case, not by children, but by others outside in, on in in large papers like uh, the New York Times and um, New York Review of Books and so forth. Um, and so you there is uh, you do get a sense of how the audience begins to impact the direction and flow of the series itself that that people responding and the and Bob's Merrill people were listening when people responded they made adjustments to um to the direction of the series when when it was you know they felt it was necessary or profitable
1: and I have a question more broadly about fame um which of course is a central idea of this book, you have, you talk about a couple of different metrics for what counts as fame. Um, One is the um, Hall Hall of Fame of Great Americans, which, as you mentioned, has zero women in its first balloting. And another, I have been flipping through to try to remember his name, but I can't, there's a professor that does a study among his college age students about who, yeah, who they think are great Americans. Um, Could you talk a little bit about those two things? Just what does it take to be a great American? And then what do you think series like this um, do to influence what we think of as being a canonical great American?
0: Sure, the fellow's name you were trying to remember is Michael Frisch and he's a professor uh, in Buffalo, uh, New York um, and he every year would give his um, students uh, who entered his survey course in American history, um, essentially a um, just a, 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 a prompt and the prompt would, would be, so I'll paraphrase it, but the prompt was something like, um, "Without thinking about it, in, you know, as a kind of knee jerk reaction, write down the first ten names that come to your mind of famous Americans prior to the Civil War." And he would collect those and collate them, and re, you know, you know, sort of, um, you know, try to get a sense of what his students were thinking about in that regard. And he found some fascinating things. He did this over a twenty year period. And he, among other things, he found that um, statesmen, uh, ov- obviously, so presidents, uh, but and also. Um, uh, sometimes military characters, figures would, um, would dominate these lists. Virtually no women would appear, with the odd exception of Betsy Ross again, who Frisch notes appears over and over uh, as the sole representative of, 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 of women. And he, he has an interesting and um, humorous um, take on that, which we, we don't need to get into. But, but, the, but the point is that this question of what constitutes fame is really fascinating to me how different um uh, as you say metrics with respect to um how fame is measured and understood um, appear um, in in these works and how you know over time there's um the the conditions change um with respect to that there have been follow-up studies done on the frisch study where um, they've asked um, roughly similar kinds of students and what they find now is of course that um that women of color um, men of color, um, uh, leaders in, not, um, you know, sports areas, um, in other you know, sort of, you know, venues beyond politics appear on these lists of uh, musicians um, and others. And so there's a there's a broadening um, of, of people's perspectives on, you know, what's fame. The other thing to keep in mind is and I write about this, but I, I'm, I'm largely um, citing Daniel Borston, the historian, is the distinction that needed to be made between celebrity and fame. That, that um, the, the feeling among people in the, in the Bob's Merrill editorial office was that if you're gonna put forward someone um, who you'd like to see included in a series on famous Americans, that person has to have been dead for a while, um, has to have established a certain um, historiographic reputation um, and has withstood the test of time as it were.
1: So towards the end of your book, you write about this sort of renaissance of the Kofa series. Many of these books end up being republished in the 1990s and 2000s, um, with seemingly only minor revisions. Could you talk a little bit about the process of revising these for a, you know, Y 2 Y2K audience? And also, what was the reception to the new editions?
0: Yeah. So that um, the Bob's Merrill Company actually went out of business in 1985. It was, a, um, I recount in the book, the sort of longer version of what happened. But the, 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 um, the series, the Childhood Famous American series, was sold off to Simon and & Schuster, and they, they, they reproduced some of the books. But in the, uh, I think you're referring to the late 90s, um, a, a woman named Flori Kitchler, Put out a series of books, uh, a, a re- reprinted uh, a series of these books in what became known as the Young Patriot series. And um, what she did, a little like me, she was motivated by her own childhood experience with these books. She had she um, contracted scarlet fever as a child, and she was in she was bedridden for a number of months. And so her she had an aunt who brought her these books and she read them and absorbed them and loved them. And then, you know, 40 years later wondered why kids weren't being exposed to this kind of literature. And so she republished them with minor changes. um, As you point out, there were some changes made, but um, the, um, the idea was that, um, and this is, I think, you know, we see this in, in, in a lot of 21st century, um, you know, discussions about children's literature. The feeling on the part of some was that these books were obsolete uh, out of date, um, you know, um, just too much product of the Cold War, uh, mid 20th century Cold War, and not enough insight into other, you know, other changing cultural priorities. Um, but others, um, others responded very positively to them. Um, the, the title Young Patriot series became, for some of them, a rallying cry, a kind of, especially in the post 9-11 era, where, um, you know, the, these ideas of um, demonstrating one's patriotism seemed especially relevant, um, that some of them rallied to these books for that reason. The editor, uh, Kitchler suggested that that was not her incentive. She wasn't trying to turn this into some sort of Patriot Act, um, you know, supplement, but rather that she was simply trying to um, give children a sense that, um, that boyhoods and girlhoods mattered, um, if one aspired to be famous and that that it was important to understand that kids weren't aren't, you know, famous people aren't born famous. Right? They, they well, in some cases they are, I suppose, maybe royalty. But the uh, but they in many cases, they they have to um, uh, you know, overcome obstacles. They face challenges. They transform themselves. And then on the back end, they become famous.
1: Well, my last question is maybe an unfair one since you just published this book. But what are you working on now, and what's next for you?
0: <laughs> Not unfair, and and I'm uh, I'm glad to be able to say that I'm actually about to. well, uh, I'm probably tomorrow sending in the final copy to the to UMass Press. Um, I'm put. I'm uh, doing a version of this on um, on male renown. <laughs> so so I've got a. It's a it's a book called From Boys to Men the boy problem in the childhood of famous American series. And so if you're interested in what you've seen here with regard to the, the, um, the volumes on girlhood, um, you'll get more of the same with respect to the volumes on boyhood. The theme is slightly different of course, because the, uh, the, the contestation is different. The, the battles between the editors and the, um, and the chief editor, Um, center uh, more on the concept of masculinity and what we might call the masculine mystique. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, that sounds fascinating, and I will look forward to it.
0: All right. Very Um, good.
1: Greg, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's really been a pleasure to talk.
0: No, no problem. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Um, I am Rebecca Turkington. You've been listening to New Books in Women's History, a channel of the New Books Network, where we've just discussed Gregory Fitzer's new book, Fame is not just for the fellows, Female Renown and the Childhood of Famous Americans series, a 2022 release from University of Massachusetts Press. <laughs>